Father, as your word declares, you are truly good. You know of what we need and when we need it. You have provided everything for us, Lord, to sustain our lives here physically on this earth. And we had asked that you would give us everything that we need this morning to sustain us during this week through your word that we would maintain and actually improve our spiritual lives and our growth. We thank you for your word and how it does that for us. After all, we know that Jesus is the bread of life. Lord, may we have a feast this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We left off in the book of Exodus chapter 30, and this was dealing with the altar of incense, and I described what that was and how it was set up inside of the temple, or excuse me, inside of the tabernacle. The temple was to come later. King Solomon would build that after David had it in his heart to do so. But God said because he had blood on his hands, he would not be the one building it, but he prepared everything necessary for the building of the temple that would to come. And again, Solomon did that. And inside of that temple, it was more grandiose. It was bigger. It was larger. It was permanent. And people looked at it and marveled at the structure itself. If we would look upon it today, we would do the same. We would marvel at the structure. It was a work of architecture for its day. Some of the stones that were laid around the area were just huge. Even today, they would have a hard time moving some of the stones. And how they did it back then, we have no idea. But this altar of incense would have been in the temple and it was in the tabernacle. Now, whatever happened to the tabernacle, you know, have they stored it somewhere? Has it just rotted away? Or these boards and planks that hold it up on the outside, the, the brazen uh, laver that's out there, the altars, what has happened to those things? We don't know what has taken place with those. We don't know where they are stored. As far as the Ark of the Covenant that was inside of the Holy of Holies, inside of this tabernacle, it is believed, as I've mentioned before, they know where it is. And so as prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 38, 39, and 40 in those chapters in Ezekiel, we know that the temple sacrifice will be reinstituted in our future. And it will be something that will be occupied or will be occupying on the inside. You will have the Ark of the Covenant again will be placed in there because the temple is not complete without that Ark. And so all of this was set up, as I mentioned last week, to foreshadow the coming of Christ. After all, the tabernacle is a representation of Jesus Christ and his ministry here on earth. Then we talked about the Day of Atonement, which is once a year. Now, this is going to be taking place this next Tuesday. This is the Day of Atonement coming up. If you were to drive past a synagogue anywhere, you would see the worshipers from uh, sunup, to sundown, that is the Sabbath time, or excuse me, from sundown to sundown, that is the Sabbath time. And they will be worshiping, and the Jews will be going to their synagogues, and they cannot reinstitute all the sacrifices that are listed here in the scriptures, and they have modified it a little bit because there is no temple, there is no tabernacle. And so they make up for that, the rabbis have taught them, to give money and to do good works and to honor God. But that is not what God has prescribed for the Day of Atonement. There is no animal sacrifice. There is no sprinkling of the blood on the mercy seat inside of the temple or the tabernacle. There is not placing of blood on the horns of the altar 
the altar of incense. And so none of that can take place. But they have come up with man's idea of how to go before God. They have simply made it up. And God, again, did not prescribe it to be this way. Now, in order to keep this tabernacle up in the wilderness, it had to be financed. And God had a way of financing it. Now, there's a couple of things that took place. And when the brazen altar, excuse me, the uh, labor was made, it was the job or the women volunteered their brazen mirrors, the bronze mirrors. And that's what they used for a mirror. They didn't have a mirror like us, but they would polish these mirrors and so that they could look in them. And some people ascribe some type of symbolism to that. Better not to look at yourself and give all your glory to the Lord to be clean and white as snow. And there's several different interpretations of that. But the women gave their mirrors in order for this uh, labor to be constructed. And they gave of themselves freely, both in time and in money. And at one point, it's not listed here, but at one point Moses had to say, that is enough, do not bring any more. Well, in order to also keep up with the uh, maintenance of the tabernacle, there was a yearly offering that had to be given. And this yearly offering was to be given by all men 20 years old. And they were to give, in our day and age, it's somewhere between 8 and $9. Now, Jesus paid this, and I'll read the scripture in a little bit. Jesus paid this temple tax, and it was instituted back with Moses that every male 20 years old and over, every able-bodied male, and at that age you were able to serve in the military, you had to give this temple tax. Everybody was obligated, no matter what income strata you maintained. If you were rich, you were to give two drachmas. If you were poor, you were to give two drachmas. And that is equivalent to about $8, $8.25, some people say, And everybody had to do it. And so we're going to read about that in the census here. And this is why the census was taken. It reads in verse 11 of chapter 30. Then the Lord said to Moses, when you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. To say this plainly, if somebody was to count these fighting men, of the Israelites, there would be a curse and people would die. God would bring this curse upon the people. And he said, don't do it unless I ordain it. God is speaking. Unless God ordains it, there's not to be a census taken. Then he goes on to say in verse 13, each one who crosses over to those already counted is to give a half shekel according to the sanctuary's shekel, which weighs two or 20 geras. This half shekel is an offering to the Lord. All who cross over those 20 years old or more are to give an offering to the Lord. The rich are not to give more than a half shekel and the poor are not to give less when you make the offering to the Lord to atone for your lives. Receive the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meaning. It will be a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord making atonement for your lives. So being a memorial, you do this every single year. You collect this tax. Now, the taking of a census was forbidden except for a decree by God for the purposes of the temple provision or the tabernacle provision. As I previously stated, 20 years old and older, they were considered autonomous during their time of wandering in the wilderness. And they could serve in the military according to Numbers chapter 1 verse 45. 
Again, the half shekel was the amount to be given, somewhere between 8 and $10 in our money today. And it was an annual basis, as I've just previously said. Jesus paid this temple tax according to Matthew chapter 17. It's listed in verses 24 through 27. And if you recall what was going on there, they came to Jesus and asked him to pay it. And I think it was Peter who was there with them. And remember, he threw the fishing line into the uh, water there and he pulled it out. And the fish had the tax in there because they didn't have the tax. And God miraculously provided for that tax to be paid. And he said he's also exempt because he is the son of the king, so to speak, son of God. And so he would be exempted. And he gave that example as he provided this money. He gave it to his disciples. So these able-bodied men specifically were to participate and none were to be exempted. Now, if we want to take an application for this, I'm sure you can do this. As you read the Old Testament and these stories, you go, okay, so how does this apply to me? You don't want to just read it for a story and say, well, that was a nice story. I enjoyed that story. Remember if you ever had English lit, uh, I think almost all of us had uh, that particular class, usually you had to read a story or a short story, and then you had to write a paragraph at it, about it and just state what you thought about that particular little story or vignette. And I remember going through school and reading several stories and having to write papers about those stories. That's not what the Bible is for. The Bible stories are given to us so that we might learn from them and then be able to transfer it to our lives in Christianity. Even though this was for the life of a person with the Israelites, this is something that we are supposed to apply to ourselves. So when you look at this temple and you go, okay, taking care of the temple or the tabernacle. We don't have a temple today. We don't have a tabernacle. We don't have that Old Testament system. But what do we have? We have the church. Now, you guys know where this is going. It's everybody is to participate equally in the giving. Now, we understand that Scripture says the person who has a lot, if they only give a little, the person who gives a lot and has much, that's in proportion to the person who has a little and gives much. You see? You see how that works? Like, for instance, remember the widow's mite? Let me explain this more clearly. The widow's mite was two pennies. She gave two pennies, but it was all she had. She gave 100% of what she had. But if a rich person comes along and gives 100% of what he has, then that's equal to the widow's mite that only gives two. But if he only gives 1% of his income or less than 1% of his income, he's way short of the widow's might. And who gets the blessing when they go to heaven? It's the widow. It is not the rich person. And so when this temple tax or this tabernacle tax came up, God said everyone is to participate. Now, it was the participation that was important. It wasn't the amount. And you might say, well, this is an unfair tax because the people who are poor give much more of their income than the people who are rich. What's with that? That's why I'm saying it's the participation that is important. God will provide the tax. I mean, if you were an Israelite and you had faith in God, you had to believe God was going to provide you the money because he put the tax. He's going to provide a way to pay it. God never sends us out on a mission and doesn't equip us for it. Now, you might think that that's the case. Now, it'll be the case if you go out on a mission and God didn't call you to go on that mission. He's not going to equip you. But if there's a tax that God deems necessary in the Old Testament, he's going to give you the money. Is there anybody in here, and this is a rhetorical question, is there anybody in here who's starving because they don't have food? 
No, God provides for us. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 says, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough worry all of itself. And if you just focus on God and seeking his kingdom first, he will provide everything that you need. And so if it's incumbent upon all of us, including me, including anybody who serves in ministry, to give to the ministry, God will provide you that income in order to do it. Now, if you say, I don't have any left at the end of the month, well, obviously, it's not that God didn't provide it. Where does the error lie? It lies with us. We're not dividing up the money properly because God provides. He wants us to prosper. As that song we just sang, he's the one that promises to help us succeed. And he will provide for us an income. He wants every man and woman to work who is able so you can provide something for somebody who has little. And so that's the principle that's working here. Everybody is to participate. Is this the case across Christendom? No, it's not. But it's also, is it the case across Christendom that everybody becomes a disciple? No, it's not. Well, how many people actually become disciples? You decide. You just look around at the people you know, and you can point and say, they've given their life to Christ. They are the ones that are endeavoring to follow Jesus. They are the ones that are committed. They follow the statutes and the the rules and regulations that God has given to us, but under the dispensation of grace, we have an intercessor, an intercessor, which is Jesus Christ, and when we blow it, he forgives us, and that's the great thing. But you know who the disciples are. You can point to them. You can say they have given their lives, and that's what God wants from us. He wants us to sacrifice everything in order to serve him, and he wants us all to be participants. Now, this idea of a census... Some of you already know this. Has it ever taken place inside of Israel? Yes, it has. And what happened? 70,000 people died. It was King David. And King David in First Chronicles chapter 21, it begins in verse 1. What David did, he kind of looked out and he saw all the people and he told his chief of staff, he said, go out and count the people. And his chief of staff, he didn't want to do it. He, he did not want to go out and count everybody because he knew that this was wrong. And David said, do it. And so when they went out and counted the, the men, the fighting men, they didn't count them all. And they missed a couple of tribes. And they came back to David and told him what it was. And then David was struck with guilt that he had done something wrong. He knew that he had done something wrong. It was not his choice to take a census of the people. Now, you know why he did it. He is looking at it. Well, maybe you don't know why. He's looking at the people and he's going, wow, we have a fantastic army. Look at this army that has been raised up here. This is going, how strong are we? Instead of how strong is the Lord? How mighty are we? Instead of how mighty is the Lord? So he wanted to count numbers. He wanted those numbers in there, nice, rich, and full. And he wanted to gloat some way on the inside. This is a work of the flesh. And so God said previously to this, don't do it. And so Gad the prophet went to David and said to him, this is what the Lord says to you because you have taken the census. You get to choose one of three punishments. Now, how would you like that? Three punishments. If, if somebody came to you and said, okay, these are your punishments, you can either starve for 60 days, you can lo- lose six fingers, or you can be in a coma for six years. You know, which one would you pick? You probably die in 60 days, right? Your fingers, well, you could probably do without a couple, but there's no good choices here. And this is what happened to David. This is what Gad said to him. You can choose three years of famine, 
Or three months of being swept away before your enemies with the sword overtaking you. Or three days of the sword of the Lord, days of plague in the land, with the angel of the Lord ravaging every part of Israel. What a choice. You know, these are terrible choices, but God's discipline comes along. And all because David decided to be disobedient, 70,000 people died because of this. Now, how do you apply that to ourselves? When we are disobedient, do people die and not go to heaven? Do people suffer the anguish and torment that awaits those who don't believe? And I, I need to stress, I am not saying this so that you are overcome with guilt and you feel so bad. You know, guilt is a good thing if it's properly applied. And it can motivate us. But the true motivation should be what God has done for us. And that's what we need to focus on. If we're always focused on guilt, we'll run out of steam at some particular point. If you're always focusing on the love that God has for us, then we're able to move forward time after time after time. And it never gets old. You know, when you're in a loving relationship and, and you just do it over and over, it's hard. You know, can, can I get an amen? Is marriage hard? Marriage is hard. But what are the rewards? I mean, if you do it right, the companionship, the love, the shared experiences. Uh, I remember several years ago, I was thinking about this the other day. Patty and I, I, I think we were in our 40s, you know, just a year or two ago. And we were in our 40s and we were discussing our marriage. And we both came to the agreement, we've had a good run. You know, up to this point, it's been good. Yeah, there are difficulties, but it's been good. And so that's the payoff. And being a disciple, being obedient, there is a payoff to that. Not being obedient, not being submissive, there is a lack of reward when we get to heaven. And we are working for the next life. So many of us, and I'm guilty of this too, we work for this life. We see how we can pat our coffers, how we can make, you know, our old age nice and easy and smooth. We, we can do that. We can plan that way. Rather, we should plan for a great reward in heaven because all of us will succumb to this life. This life will overtake us and it will cease. And so that's our motivation. Our motivation needs to be the love of God, to be obedient to Him, not because we must. But guilt, you know, if it needs to come in every once in a while, okay, let God use it. Let us be willing to let Him use it. But let the motivation be solely based in His love and His grace because that's how He wants us motivated. Can you imagine being married to somebody and the person is always heaping guilt on you to do something? What kind of relationship is that? You're going to make me feel guilty if I don't do that, right? Yes, I will. So you better get to it. I mean, that is not love at all. That is just the opposite. You hate the one that you're with if you're putting that kind of constraint on them. So David did this, and he decided, he took the census, he decided that three days of the sword of the Lord, the days of plague in the land, would be the one that he would take. He didn't want to be running from his enemies. He didn't want to fall into their hands. He would rather be in the hand of the Lord in his discipline. As a result, I said, 70,000 people died. Now, he bought the threshing floor of Aruna. And Aruna just wanted to give it to him. And David said, 
I will not sacrifice to the Lord something that costs me nothing. And this goes back to the idea of the census and being participating and giving as well. We don't give to the Lord something that doesn't cost us. When we give of our time, our income, whatever it might be, we want to make sure it's sacrificial. It's not just, well, you give something. Like somebody comes to the door and wants to sell you some chocolate for their band. And do you buy the chocolate and does it set you back where you can't eat the rest of the month? No. And I'm not saying give like that to the church or any church. But it's this idea, it's going to cost you something. That's what David was saying. He would not buy the field or would not take the field without buying it from Aruna. And he would not just accept the sacrifice. He had to pay for the sacrifice. So he was showing God that he was willing to sacrifice in order to appease God, in order to atone for the sin. And, of course, that is the Temple Mount area. And, and right in that same area is where Abraham sacrificed his son. See, all this is, or tried to sacrifice his son. That is where all this foreshadowing goes forward. And that's where Jesus Christ, that same Mount Moriah area, that's where Jesus Christ was crucified. All this was set up long ago so that we would see what is going on. So this plague was sent to Israel. 70,000 men died in Israel. And so one of the thing with David here, wanting to count the people, with God, the numbers don't matter. You can have just one person. For instance, remember in the book of Judges, there's this guy named Gideon. Now, Gideon is probably best remembered for the fleece. He wanted to know from God, God, am I supposed to attack the Midianites? Am I not supposed to attack the Malachites? What am I supposed to do here? And he, God said, go. And he goes, well, I just want to make sure. So he took this fleece and he set it outside his tent. He said, God, you know, if I'm supposed to go, could you have the dew fall on the fleece only and not on the ground around it? And God said, okay, I'll do it. And so he went out the next morning and he picked up the fleece and he just wrung out all the water from the heavy dew that fell on the fleece and the ground around it was completely dry. And he goes, God, I don't mean to test you or anything, but... How about this time we just reverse it where the fleece is completely dry and the ground around it is just completely wet? God decided to do it. So he came out there and that fleece was just as dry as dry can be. And this is where we get the idea of putting out a fleece. And it has to be supernatural if you think you're going to put out a fleece. You just don't want to do it. If I see a white VW van, then I'm supposed to go to church. I mean, white is the most common car, and how many white VW vans are there out there? There's tons of them out there. So you don't do something like that. You do something that only God can answer, only something that's supernatural. Well, Gideon was also known for going out and having 32,000 men in order to go against the Midianites. And God said, that's too many. 32,000 men is too many. And he goes, well, God, what do you want me to do? He goes, go to the people and tell them. Look, anybody who's afraid to go out and attack the Midianites, if you have fear in your heart, just leave. So several thousand left at that point. And then after that, he goes, okay, you still have too many. I think it was 10,000 or so left. Or there were 10,000 left. And, and then what happened was he took the individuals, the Israelites, down to the water. And God said, okay, I will separate for you those who are supposed to go and fight against the Midianites. And he divided them by those who would get down and drink the water and stick their face in the water as opposed to those who would get down on one knee and kind of lap it up like this, like they're looking around everywhere. And only 300 men lapped up the water. And God said, that's what I want, 300 men. 
300 men to fight this whole army. 300 men. And of course, God gave them the victory. So this idea of taking a census, the number of people, that's not what counts. It's relying on the Lord. He's the one that we're supposed to trust in. So David erred. He should not have taken the census. And the rule is, don't take a census at any time. It's reliance on the Lord. And for only reason to take a census is for the provision. And then you forget about it. You forget about how many people are there. And so that's what we want to learn from that. This fact, we want to be obedient to the Lord. We don't want to do what he didn't say to do. We want to do exactly what he told us to do. We want to participate, each one of us. And we don't want to put our trust in ourselves or in the might that is surrounding us. Now going on from here, the bronze laborer, the basin. Verse 17 says in chapter 30, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a bronze basin with its bronze stand for washing. Place it between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water in it. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will, be, they will not die. Also, when they approach the altar to minister by presenting an offering made to the Lord by fire, they shall wash their hands and their feet so they will not die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants for the generations to come. So this represents a cleansing after the sacrifice of sin for the priest so he's able to enter the holy place and the holy of holies and fulfill his priestly duties. Now our cleansing, for us, it's done by Christ. We don't have a basin inside the foyer where you guys have to dip in the water and wash your hands and come on in. Now some churches, they do have a thing of water there, right? And yeah, you guys already know what it is. You dip it in there and you do this thing and you walk in and then you kneel like this before you walk in. And, you know, all of that tradition that's there. And I understand people need tradition sometimes. We have tradition here. You might say, no, we are a church without tradition. No, we have tradition. I mean, just think of the service. How does the service go? Well, we walk out the door, Dustin prays after everybody stands up. How many weeks do we do that? Every single week, we do that. And then the music starts. And we sing a couple of songs. Then I have you turn around and you introduce yourself. Then we sing another song or two. Then you cross the aisle and you talk to each other. And then I have you sit down. And then we play some more worship. And it's more soulful, lifting up the hands, whatever you want to do. It's all great. And so we participate in that. And then I get to talk. And you have to listen to me. That's the way it goes. And then once it's all done, I usually pray. Sometimes we have communion. Then we close with the song. That's our tradition. Now, people like tradition. Whenever we change something, guess what happens? The sheep's ears, they go up. The eyes open. I mean, we can change the smallest thing. Like if I change these black curtains to white, (laughs) yeah, you laugh. You would come in here and go, I changed it. Why did he change it? If I put some wood up here or something, you looked at it and you go, why did he change it? Who did that? Why was that done? And we get upset when there's no tradition or we break the tradition. That's why we have tradition. That's why people need it. It helps them feel comfortable. If I changed up everything, we've done this before. We've taken these chairs and we've moved them. We've taken out the center aisle and we've had just all the chairs in the middle. We've taken these chairs and we've angled them going back. And people come in and they don't know what to do. Where is my chair? You know, it's not where it's supposed to be. And so this tradition thing, I 
get the tradition. I understand it. And we try to follow the tradition. But if we make little changes, please, you, you don't have to get your feathers ruffled a little bit. You know, we can just say, okay, maybe God wants to change things up a little bit here. Maybe we need to even some things out. And so this, this idea of following the Lord and making sure we have this tradition, whether it's the cleansing in the Old Testament or it's the holy water or whatever it is, or it's the standing up and sitting down, that tradition is there. And the Israelites had lots of tradition. Matter of fact, the labor, I've seen some depiction of this labor where you have the top, you know, and it's about this big around and you would walk up to it and there'd be water in it constantly. The priest would have to serve that, constantly filling it up and changing the water and they'd have to wash their hands. But also on the base of that, there would be a lip that would come up so they could stick their feet in it and wash their feet. And then they'd bring their feet back out. Some other depictions are different, but that's one particular depiction. It was probably a little more accurate because they had to wash their hands and feet. Now, this was done for the cleansing. Now, our cleansing is done by Christ, and a cleansing needed to be done between each sacrifice. Now, for us, to illustrate, in John chapter 13, verse 2, remember the story where Peter... Or Jesus, he girded himself, he got down, and he washed the feet of his disciples. Remember that? How many in here have never been to a foot-washing ceremony in a church? Can you raise your hand? One? Well, several of you. I, I've been to one. Uh, my pastor did it uh, once. And it is, for some, the most unnerving event that would ever take place. And I, I, I happened to be sitting in the front row and my pastor, he came down and there's a person sitting in the front row. I, best, I wish they never had sat there, but you could tell uh, Pastor Dave was talking about it and he brings his bowl out from the pulpit, like right now. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, he, he'd bring this bowl out and he sat it down in front of this person and he's speaking the whole time and he took off their shoes and he started washing their feet. And you could tell the person was visibly uncomfortable having that happen. And you could tell the rest. And I was watching because I, I turned to this. I had to look like this and I could see most of the church. I could see some people going. Like it, it, it was the worst thing that you could ever do. Because in our culture, you don't grab somebody's feet. Right? You're grabbing somebody's feet. That's just wrong. Well, that foot washing ceremony is like that. And Peter, he objected to Jesus cleaning his feet because that was the job for the lowliest person in the house. If you were a new servant, that was your job to wash the feet of the guests that would come in and clean them and set them right. And Peter said, you are not going to wash my feet, far be it from me. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in my kingdom. And Peter said, well, not only my feet, but my head too and my whole body, I'll take a bath, is what he said. And Jesus responded to him and said, the person who cleans or who is cleansed only has need to wash the feet. And so for us, we also need this cleansing after a sacrifice, so to speak. And what I'm referring to here is when we go through a day, do you think that you're untouched by sin if you just live a normal day. Let's start with traffic. I don't even have to go through that illustration, right? Let's talk about 
work, let's talk about going to the store and buying something that is broken. Let's talk about going back to the complaint department. After all, Philippians 2.14 can be ignored on some occasions, right? And so we, we have a life that we are immersed in sin, whether we actually commit a sin or not, and our thought life too. Our thought life is taken over. So what do we do with that? We go before the Lord and we say, Lord, wash me. Wash me by your word. Cleanse me. So this cleansing has to happen for us as well. But it isn't a cleansing unto salvation. It's a cleansing that restores us in right relationship with God. For Scripture says in a couple of different places, in Psalms and Isaiah, if I had hidden uh, sin in my heart, if I regard sin in my heart, the Lord would not hear me. And so it leaves open the avenue of communication. When we go before God and we say that we are sinners, God says, I forgive you. I extend to you my grace and my mercy. That's all that's required of us. But that means we have to spend time with him daily. How often should you take a shower? It's always a good idea to take one daily. If you're not taking one daily, what happens? It's like Mary or Martha said of her brother. He stinketh, right? And, and so you want to make sure you're doing the same thing spiritually, that you go before God remain in constant communication with him, and we can receive that cleansing daily. We don't need to have our, all of our sins forgiven. God has washed away our sins. It's just to maintain the fellowship that God has provided for us and with us. And then finally, we have the anointing oil here that is to be prepared. It says in verse 22, Then the Lord said to Moses, Take the following fine spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much, that is 250 shekels of fragrant cinnamon, 250 shekels of fragrant cane, 500 shekels of cassia, all according to the sanctuary shekel, and a hen of olive oil. Make these into the sacred anointing oil, a fragrant blend, a work of a perfumer. It will be the sacred anointing oil. Then use it to anoint the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the table and all of its articles, the lampstand and its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and all of its utensils and the basin with its stand. You shall consecrate them so they will be most holy and whatever touches them will be holy. Anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them so they may serve me as priests. Say to the Israelites, this is to be my sacred anointing oil for the generations to come. Do not pour it on men's bodies and do not make any oil with the same formula. It is sacred and you are to consider it sacred. If you go to Israel today, the Jewish vendors will have this formula and little vials that you can buy. Now, what do you think about that? I mean, if you're under the law, if you consider yourself under the law, you're lacking the temple, God says, do not make it for your own personal use. They make it. And it's called anointing oil. You can buy this. Oh, yes, pastor, take this back to your church. You can anoint the people with it, you know. And you can. You can bring it back. And it's fragrant and it has this mixture in it. And I'm sure you can buy it online. But God said, no, this is exclusively for the temple. Now, we are no longer under that covenant. And if, they want, if we wanted to do that, I, I don't see a problem with that. But the Jews who claim to be under the covenant, you, you see, and you don't want to look at, at the Jews and say, you, you know, what about us? Can we do the same thing, right? Do we spend daily time with the Lord? Are we in prayer? Do we meditate on his word? Do we read through it? Do we go to church? Do we give? Do we serve all those things? The Jews could turn to us and say, you, and you have the Messiah. 
you know, you see how we can go back and forth? And so it's all about grace. But to go on with this anointing oil, whoever makes perfume like it and whoever puts it on anyone other than a priest must be cut off from his people. Then the Lord said to Moses, take fragrant spices, gum, resin, anicha, it sounds like a um, Japanese word, anicha, and uh, gabinum and, and pure frankincense, all the equal amounts. And make a fragrant blend of incense, the work of a perfumer. It is to be salted and pure and sacred. Grind some of it to powder and place it in front of the testimony in the tent of meeting where I will meet with you. I shall, or It shall be most holy to you. Do not make any incense with this formula for yourselves. Consider it holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to enjoy its fragrance must be cut off from his people. In other words, you were kicked out of the camp. You are no longer part of the Israelites. So worship is not meant for personal pleasure. Let me say that again. Worship is not meant for personal pleasure. Now I'm for one, I like to listen to music, worship music, that brings me pleasure. I am not one who likes heavy metal. If I listen to heavy metal, it causes me an extreme amount of displeasure. I don't like it. I don't like rap. I don't like, and I listen to all kinds of music. I don't like rap at all. I like beautiful music. I like music with a beat. I like disco. Disco. You know? <laughs> it, it has a beat. And so I listen to music that brings me pleasure. But worship... Now, what if we play a song that you don't like. <laughs> Which for us, you know, some of these songs we play over and over and over and we're playing that one again. You know, it, yeah, we're playing it again. And some of them, for us, leading worship, they get a little old, right? But for you, not necessarily, unless we play them too much and you say, again, and we see your eyes roll, like, again, you're playing this one again. It's not about how we feel about it. It's the words. It's what's directed to God. It's bring him praise, offering a sacrifice of praise to the Lord. It's a sacrifice. It's a burnt offering. I'm going to sing it, but I don't like it. Well, it's not about us. And, you know, we sang several songs today about standing up and what else? Do you guys remember? Raising your hands. Now, when was the last time you raised your hands in praise and worship to God? And you go, no, this isn't the church of the raising hands. And if you do, sometimes, have you seen those uh, comical um, Christian comedians? The one guy goes, okay, you have this kind of raising hands, right? Wait, what's the name of that guy? You know who he is, right? He, he has a whole section on it where different churches, this is acceptable right here. And then there's the touchdown. You know, people raise their hands all the way up here for the touchdown. And we go through these different things. But scripture over and over and over, it says, raise your hands to the Lord. And if you've never raised your hands to the Lord, you're going, this feels really weird. You know, to raise my, somebody might see me. You know, close your eyes then. You ever do that thing that the kids do? Can't. You can't see me. You know, you close your eyes. Raise your hands to the Lord. And it's going to take you several attempts to get over that before you praise God. You raise your hand to God. I mean, we go to football games, right? You go to the Chargers. How many people raise their hands there? The whole stadium is worshiping the Chargers. Yeah! You know, that's what they do. But you come to church. No, I'm not going to. I'm not going to praise. It's not about us. 
How do you pray? Well, I get down on my knees. Well, can you stand and raise your hands? You know, Scripture says to do that as well. Worship is not about us. And what if you don't sing? Well, I don't like this song. It's not about us. It's about God. You're singing to God. Well, I don't like to sing very loud. Why? Whatever you do with your whole heart, mind, soul, strength, right? Whatever you do with your right hand. So how loud can you sing? But it doesn't sound very well. Do you think God cares? Did God not make your voice? He wants your heart. So you sing out. You, I mean, you get into it. If you need to move a little bit, you know, go ahead, move a little bit. If you, if you, you just need to participate. This is for God. That's who this is for. And so worship is not meant for our personal pleasure, and worship is not meant to appeal to the natural man. How often do you start praying and you go, I don't feel like praying? Every day. Your body goes, I have to pray again. Oh, this is work. If you're operating in the spiritual realm, your flesh has to die. That's what God calls us to do. There's more to be said about this anointing. You know, the anointing oil is representative of the Holy Spirit. God anoints us with the Holy Spirit. Jesus was anointed for his ministry, this perfume, so to speak. And we are anointed with the Holy Spirit like a fragrance before God because he has rested upon us. This anointing takes place. And so my encouragement to you guys is as we see what has taken place here, everything from the altar of incense and the sacrifice that is made, the Israelites being obedient to that, David being disobedient with taking the census. It was about him and his thoughts and this idea of worship taking place. And it's about God. It's not about us. And we shouldn't be motivated by guilt. We should be motivated by the love that God has for us. And the only way you can learn about that is to be in his word and to be in fellowship. I want to stress the fellowship as I close here. Fellowship is so important. If you just come to church and you leave and you don't talk to anybody, you are missing one of the most important things that God has said for us to be involved in. Not only having the donuts and coffee, but actually sitting down and going through his word. My prayer for you is that you're able to die to yourself, just like it's my prayer for me, that we can all die to ourselves, that we can live for God. We would not seek our own advantage, our own pleasure, that we would seek after God and his goodness and we'd be directed and we'd be led by the Spirit. We would not lead ourselves and we would not so easily object. And so, Father, as we look at your word here and we thank you for the testimony that has been given to us, help us to do these things. Although David was loved by you and he, he loved you, Lord, help us to have that, but help us to stay away from the disobedience, which we know is so hard. But with your help, we can accomplish these things. In Jesus' name, and the church said, Amen. Amen.